You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at InFocus Church. We hope this message encourages you and leaves you feeling challenged to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. When I say the word culture, I wonder what's the first thing that comes to your mind. Let me just say this, ironically, the context to the culture that you live in is going to have an impact on what you imagine when you hear the word culture. Therefore, defining terms is going to be important as we start our new series today called The Church and Culture. Super excited about what I believe God wants to teach us because we are living in a cultural context that God has sovereignly designed for you and I to be in right now. And the word culture is far more expansive in its definition than I think we would first imagine. Because sometimes the first thought that comes to our mind when we hear the word culture is something bad. That's like, that's our definition. It's just something bad. It's something that we need to fight against. To some, it's how we grew up, or maybe it's something that has some ethnic influence on our lives. And to some, it's something popular, political, or polarizing. Maybe it's affixed to a decade like 80s culture. That's kind of where I like to think about my glory years in the 80s. Or maybe it's affixed to a location, southern, northern, western, eastern. But here's the deal. You cannot live on this planet and not have culture or be influenced by culture in some way. And so I'm going to give us some general definitions to understand what we're talking about when we use this word. Terms like culture, what do I mean? What are we meaning when we're talking about this in this series to help us actually be those who can have an impact on the culture around us, which I believe is the call on our lives. Here's the first definition, culture. It's the artificial secondary environment that humans superimpose on the natural. It comprises of languages, habits, ideas, beliefs, customs, social organization, inherited artifacts, technical processes, and values. Give you an example, water would equal nature, a canal would equal culture something that we do. So another definition, it's the work of humankind's minds and our hands, like speech, education, tradition, myth, science, art, philosophy, government, law, right, beliefs, inventions, technologies, cuisine, music. So when it comes to the necessary question, the question we want to answer in this series so that we could be the church that God's called us to be, how do we interact with culture? We can look to scripture for guidance, as always, and we will. But let me just say, first off, practically, we can look at Jesus, God in the flesh, right? Jesus, who came to earth and actually interacted with culture. He lived in this world and interacted with people and did things with his hands. He interacted with culture. So as his followers, as Christians, if that's who we are, the answer to how we interact with culture can be seen in his life. Most often in the church, 
or we could say the church culture. When we use the word culture, we're referring to something like the systems of the world. And it's something that we're to be against. It's something that we're to fight against. It's something we're counter to. That's where we come up with the phrase counter-cultural. But is that always the case? Are we always supposed to be fighting against culture? Are we always in fight mode? Or is there a better way to interact in the world that we live in? And maybe I can frame my proposition this way. Even when standing against something in culture, we don't have to be angry, mean, contentious jerks. Generally speaking, we have a love-hate relationship with culture. We either love it too much or we hate it. That's typically kind of where we find ourselves because we as humans live in a world of extremes without a whole lot of nuance in our lives. We're prone to excess. We either love something too much or we hate it. So when it comes to living life, there has to be a way that Christianity and culture interact that's more effective than the dead in extremes of legalistic morality or hard-hearted immorality. There's got to be something else in the middle somewhere. Biblically, God wants us to live in the world while not being of it. And we're going to talk about that. So instead of recoiling away from culture in some kind of holiness bubble or retreating into some sort of religious legalism, maybe we could lean into and leverage the culture around us for the purpose of seeing it redeemed. I propose that instead of culture warriors... God has called us to be cultural transformers. Our response as believers should be this. We don't destroy culture. We transform it. We don't destroy culture. We transform it. We are transformers. Now, if you are highly influenced by popular culture, I'm not telling you that you're an Autobot. You're not Optimus Prime. You're not Bumblebee. As as cool as that is, and as much as I would love for my car to be able to do that, it's not going to happen. At least not in my lifetime, probably. Might happen one day. But I'm talking about as believers, we have a responsibility to see culture transformed for the kingdom of God. Just in case that can seem daunting, because it does, whenever we say something like we're going to change the world, that's just like, man, what are you talking about? I can't even change my child's diapers. And I'm going to change the world? Let me put it this way, I'm talking about us changing your world, the world that you live in, the culture that you interact with day in and day out, the culture that we interact with as the church in our community day in and day out. We can change the world around us. And to that point, there are all kinds of subcultures within our culture that make up the broader one. There's all kinds of them that influence our specific context that we're talking about. For instance, we have popular culture, which we're all really familiar with, or pop culture. We have high culture, ethnic culture, rap culture, church culture, shoe culture, political culture, and my favorite, elf culture. Man, y'all are so slow. Nobody's seen the movie Elf, I guess. I just like to, I found somebody who has an affinity for elf culture. That's what he says. No, forget it. All of them make up the culture. All of those things make up the culture that we live in. And it's not going away as long as we are here on this planet. So how do we best engage with it in a redemptive way for the glory of God? 
If you've been around the church for any amount of time, you probably have an answer or you've used the answer that I said just a moment ago. Well, pastor, we are to be in the world, but not of it. What the heck does that mean? Like we say some things, a lot of, we're to be in the world and not of it. And could you please explain that to me? What does that mean to you? So let's go to God's word and let's see what Jesus is praying for us. And let's see if we can better define what we mean by that or what would be a better phrase for us to utilize and to live out as the church. John, if you have your Bible, the book of John, chapter 17, verse 14 and 19. This is the last of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Starting in verse 14, I have given them your word, Jesus is praying, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Lord, I pray that your word would change us, transform us to be exactly who you have called us to be in this time for your glory. The word for world there in this particular passage of scripture is the word cosmos. It's, it basically means the system of the world. It, it's, it's the earth and the people who inhabit it. That's the cosmos. Or maybe also further defining it, it's the system of the world that operates apart from God's direction. It's the system of the world that maybe operates under the sway of Satan. So it is a little bit different than cultural because everything about culture is not under the guise of the sway of Satan. Everything's not satanic in culture. So it's a bit different. And although there is some obvious overlap between the world and culture, that word can sometimes be used interchangeably, what we see in Jesus' prayer in verse 18 prevents us from being huddled together, awaiting for the rapture while making sure that we're not contaminated or adulterated by the culture around us. That's what theological ethicist Richard Niebuhr called Christ against culture in a book that he wrote many, many, I think 50 years ago now called Christ and culture. But Christ against culture is an extreme response where there's a total rejection of culture and society altogether. And I don't see that in Jesus. I don't see that when I read the word of God. I don't see that in his prayer when he says that we're to be in the world, but not of it. What I see is Jesus instead sending us into the world to be in culture to be culture transformers, not culture warriors. Look at this verse again. Because it's there, there's, we're in the world and not of it. That's not actually in this passage of Scripture. He just says he's going to send us into the world, and I think that's very important. Jesus is not asking his Father for his disciples to be taken out of the world immediately. That's not what he says. But he is praying for them as they are what? Sent into the world. I'm praying for them that you'll protect them as they are sent into the culture in which they live. 
He begins with the starting point, and it should be all of our starting point, and that is not being of the world, separated from, set apart for what? The use of God in the earth. Then he prays for them, and he says, as they are sent into the world, God protect them. So maybe we should think of ourselves as culture changers and reverse the saying from in but not of to being not of but sent into. We're not of, but we are sent into. The beginning place is not of the world, but that's not where we stay. That's not where we live. That's not where we huddle together and just remain stagnant. Instead, we're going. We are a going people. We are to go and make disciples. We are to be those that are making disciples as we are being discipled. So there is movement toward being sent into the world to fulfill the Great Commission. And the emphasis here in this passage of Scripture is not being set apart so much as being sent into, sent with a mission into the world, into our culture, to be salt, to be light in this culture, to be light in the darkness. We're not on a mission to disassociate ourselves from the culture that we are in, but we are on a mission to bring hope and healing into the darkness, and the only people that can do that are those who have the light of Christ in them. And this makes perfect biblical sense in light of Genesis, where we spent a lot of time over the last few weeks talking about biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, that in creation, God, before we did anything, made us male and female, and he also put us into culture. Like, it's there. God gave humankind the mandate to go and fill the earth with his glory, to begin to do things as his people, to create. That's a culture. And just like with biblical manhood and womanhood, culture started immediately in creation when we were given the mandate to create and to care for and enjoy what God had made. That's culture. We still have the same mandate today as his people, the church, and that is to create things and to care for what God has made and given to us. And guess what? We should do it better than anybody else. So oftentimes I see us as the church being those that copy more than creating. We don't care for things any differently than anybody else, and yet we should be those that care the most. This leads to one simple definition that I think we can use as it relates to culture, and it's this. Culture is what we make of the world. Culture is what we make of the world. And if that's too big, because it is, as I said a moment ago, then you can use it this way. Culture is what we make of our world. Culture is what you make of the world that you have been placed in in the context that you have been given by God's grace. And broadly, it is our attempt to take the world as it is given to us by God and make something else that glorifies him. Like sculptures, food, cuisine, music, all of those things bear the stamp of our God and our God-given desire to make something more than we've been given to bring glory to him who gave it to us. So it begs the question, what are we making, church? What are we making as really a different culture in the culture? 
What are we making? How are we creating? What are we creating? How are we caring for the people in the world around us? Or are we just like holy hulks smashing our way through the world, tearing down strongholds? How do you like that? Hulk smash. Christian smash. My goal throughout this series is going to be to bring our attention to a trait of God's kingdom, a subculture, if you will, that I guess we see in our normal worldly culture, but it has its perfection and its right way of living in Christ's culture. Those who have the light of Christ in them must bring light into the darkness of our world. So there's going to be some distinct differences, although there is some nuance, and there may be some things like, well, I see this in the world, and I see this in the church, but there's a difference for the purpose of being sent into. Like, there's a difference in our lives for the purpose of not going, oh, I'm different, and I'm going to hang on until Jesus comes back, but so that I can be, as a different person, set apart for the glory of God, go into the world, creating things for his glory, caring for things that he's given to me, and be sent into and separated from at the same time. Paul pointed to idols in the Areopagus in a pagan culture. And he found common ground, and he brought them to the common ground and shared the gospel. I fear oftentimes we don't look for enough common ground with those who are not like us yet. So with our remaining time, I want to look briefly at the subject of happiness, joy, because it's something that we all are pursuing. It's something that we all want. It is actually one of the biggest things that we go after in our cultural context. Like we all want to be happy. Literally, we have it as an American right to be happy and pursue it. The commitment to pursue happiness is given to us in our constitution, right? It's like we're going to be able to do this. It's culturally linked to our nation's formation and founding, and that carries a lot of baggage with it in and of itself. So no matter where or when we were born, we are all influenced to some degree by the culture where they're born into. Everybody has a worldview that comes from the system of their particular culture. Our worldview is the foundation of what we believe in our belief system, and it impacts how we understand things in the world around us. Culture is in one sense a worldview, if you will, that has come to life as people create language and art and tools and even social norms based on their worldview. And then those products of their culture then circle back to reinforce or adjust that person's worldview. Sometimes we find ourselves in those echo chambers of our culture and we mistake our culture for Christianity. But like all of creation, culture is marred by the fall. 
This is why we have to be careful as it relates to the world and culture around us, and that is why the gospel matters so much. The gospel is what transforms worldviews. The gospel is what transforms culture. As Christ transforms us, I believe a new culture begins to surround our lives, made up of many subcultures that both shape our lives and create or curate a culture that other people see and want to embrace. I believe it is the culture of Christ or the culture of Christianity in its most righteous form. In our example today, talking about happiness and joy, we have been sent into the world to create a culture of lasting joy instead of a culture of fleeting happiness. You could say we're curating a culture of pure enjoyment versus temporary pleasure. As culture changers, as culture transformers, we get to offer true joy and happiness to the world around us that is committed to pursuing a form of happiness that has left most of us empty and sad. And this sounds a lot easier, like, well, man, everybody wants joy and happiness. This ought to be an easy thing to export out of the church. Except that the biblical joy is a little bit different from worldly happiness And in our cultural context, people don't know the difference. People don't even know the difference in the church many times. Like if it doesn't make you happy, don't do it. Like if it doesn't make you happy, then why are you doing it? That's our first thought. I'm going to find my happy place and I'm going to stay there. And add to the fact that our culture generally believes that we have the right to be happy. It is an inalienable right. And many people who claim to be Christians look and act like that we've mixed Sour Patch Kids with cranberry juice and drank it all day long. And it's a hard sell. So how do we create a culture of joy in a world that's obsessed with being happy? First of all, we have to have it ourselves. And then second of all, we have to live it out loud. Like, this is one thing that you just can't say you have. You actually have to live it out for somebody to see that you have it. So let's just unpack it a little bit. And let me start by saying, this might help you, that biblically speaking, joy and happiness go together. Like, they're not really uh, separated. There's not a lot of distinction between happiness and joy in the Bible. They're often words that are used interchangeably, also with the word gladness. So you've got gladness and, and happiness and joy. What does matter is the source of it. The, the word so many times is like, well, I'm, I'm talking about joy and, and you just talking about happiness. No, I'm saying that God wants us to have joy and that that's, there's a happiness that's a part of that. There's a, a fruit of the spirit that's a part of that. There's gladness that's a part of that. It's all about the source. That's the most important thing about this thing that we are exporting into our culture, which is joy. What is the source of your joy and your happiness? What is the source? Because there's a joy from the world that is fleeting and hollow and leaves us empty. And there's a joy from God which brings contentment and it's everlasting no matter what's going on. The source matters. Just like when you're drinking water. The source matters. I'm not going to get off onto Keevan's thing about drinking water right now, but the source matters, like he said. Funiac Springs or wherever we might, like that's one thing, or like a a glacier off in the great white north. I, I think the water's going to taste different. The source matters. But biblical joy comes from the Lord. 
It is a perpetual gladness of the heart that comes from knowing and experiencing and trusting in Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, joy is the response and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem occurs when we try to find our ultimate joy in created things instead of the one who created them. Moreover, biblical joy is not based on our possessions. It's not based on our circumstances. It's not based on our relationships. It's not based on any of those things. It's based on Jesus. Warren Wearsby defines joy as the inward peace and sufficiency that is not affected by outward circumstances. Our happiness in the world, if you will, is fleeting and our joy is incomplete if it is only externally caused. Doesn't mean it's wrong, it just means it's gonna fade. Well, what does that mean for Christians? Does that mean that we're, we're never sad or, or we're never down? Well, I hope not, because I've been there. And here's what I want you to understand. I assure you that being joyful doesn't mean Christians never feel or express their pain or sadness. That's not what it means. The Christian life is full of afflictions and adversity and trouble. We're going to go through difficult things. Jesus promised that we would do that. And the psalmist has given us permission and encouraged us to express our grief and to pour out our hearts, even with sadness and anger and frustration, to God in an emotionally healthy way called a lament. So we can do that and still have abiding joy. But here's the difference between biblical joy, happiness, and worldly happiness. Even during our most difficult times, we can still choose to have joy. Why? Because of our hope in Christ. That's where it comes down to. Paul exemplified joy even in the middle of suffering throughout his ministry. He was beaten, shipwrecked, imprisoned, bitten by snakes, and more, and he still had joy. How in the world did he have it? He called it being full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. They're not actually incompatible in the kingdom of God. They're not actually incompatible in the culture of Christianity. 2 Corinthians 7.4, he said, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. How could Paul experience joy in the middle of his worst tribulation and suffering? Charles Spurgeon said it well when he said, believers are not dependent upon circumstances. Their joy comes not from what they have, but from what they are. Not from where they are, but from whose they are. Not from what they enjoy, but from that which was suffered for them by their Lord. Joy, biblically speaking, is not just a pleasant feeling. Rather, joy is the transformative change that the Holy Spirit begins to work in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, that transforms who we are in every aspect of how we live and how we think and how we approach life. So having been sent into the world, we now have the privilege to help other people encounter this kind of abiding joy that everybody is searching for. And I think this would make a huge difference in our world as we seek to transform culture by living in the world that we have been given and sent into and and given to enjoy. Let me synthesize the differences between worldly pleasures, temporal happiness, and abiding joy in Christ. 
One is based on circumstances. One is no matter the circumstances. One is me focused. One is kingdom focused. One is just a feeling. One is a state of being. One looks to right now. One looks to heaven and eternity. One has their hope in it, whatever it is, and one has their hope in Christ alone. Let me add this. I think that as Christians, we should enjoy everything God has given us to enjoy, and we should do so better than anybody else. And one of the ways that I believe that we could transform culture of fleeting happiness or empty pursuits of happiness is by truly enjoying all that God has given us to enjoy while we're here in the culture that we currently live in. 1 Timothy 6, 17 says, they put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. See, I don't know where we came up with the idea that as Christians we're not supposed to enjoy life. God is not a cosmic killjoy. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. What God does is he invites us and instructs us and leads us by his spirit to live in a way as to protect our joy while enjoying all that he has made. Isn't that a different way to look at life? Like God is trying to protect your joy while allowing you to enjoy the things that he has given you in this life to enjoy. And the way that he protects us is by putting things around us and boundaries and places. So he says, listen, that might look like it's going to be pleasurable. That might look like that's going to bring you happiness. That might look like that's going to satisfy all of your needs. But there's only one thing that will do that, and that's me. Now, you can enjoy that, but know this, your everlasting joy comes from me. Life has been given to us to enjoy Like if somebody told me that I could not enjoy food or desserts, I'd cast the demon out of them. Like, well, I don't know why you're eating such good food like that when there's people all over the world that are starving. So me not eating is going to help them not be hungry? So do you drink dirty water because there's a lot of people all over the world that drink dirty water? Like I'm not being coy or facetious here I'm the reality is being led by the spirit of God I'm not saying be frivolous and ridiculous and extravagant I'm saying enjoy what God has given you to enjoy I mean the apostle Paul agreed with the idea that it was demonic to say that you couldn't enjoy what God had given you to enjoy first Timothy 4 3 they forbid people to marry and ordered them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth that's doctrine of demons. Paul was saying, don't negate your freedom in Christ in an attempt to be holy in your own strength. Like what I'm saying is that demons would like for people to engage in like religious asceticism, which that means deny yourself of every good thing that God has given us in this world, like avoiding culture and enjoying anything in the world, as if that's going to make a difference in the lives of people that desperately need Jesus. This would include such things as forbidding people to marry or to eat certain foods. And by performing those self-denying acts, a person can have a false impression that they're pleasing God by that attitude. And in actuality, God has never commanded us to do any such thing. There's nothing that any of us can do to earn the favor of God. 
Our responsibility is to believe in Jesus and receive his forgiveness by grace alone. Then we enjoy God and all that he's given us in this life to enjoy even now to his glory. Here's what I would say. We can enjoy God in his word and we can enjoy God in his world that he made. Go back to creation again. If we look at the garden, we see that there was way more things to enjoy than there was to deny. And what we've tried to create in the Christian life is way more things to deny than there are things to enjoy. And I believe with the right eyes of faith and a heart to please God, the same can be true for us today, that there is so much more that God has given to us to enjoy than there is to deny. We just have to discern and be wise in how we enjoy the pleasures of this life that God has given us to enjoy. We have to discern what things are gifts from God to enjoy while not making an idol or the hope or the source of our happiness. A.W. Tozer said the people of God ought to be the happiest people in all the wide world. People should be coming to us constantly and asking the source of our joy and delight. And they can't do that if we're hiding from culture. They can't do that if all they see is people that are angry and mad. When it comes to the pleasures of life, money, food, drink, entertainment, we have to be wise, yes. Because of the fall and because of sin, we tend to lack self-control. Anybody lack self-control? Okay. Yeah, when it comes to food and other things, we don't understand the word moderation. Like, that doesn't make any sense to us. We just, the, the cry of our culture is more. Just give me more banana pudding. Like, more, please. Yeah. More is the cry of our souls. And that's okay because really the cry of our souls is more of Jesus and less of me. So it's not that the cry is wrong, it's that the placement of the hope is wrong. I need more of you, Jesus, because you're more than enough so that we can have more than enough self-control to properly enjoy God and his creation without being contaminated. The world is subject, yes, to evil, but the world is not evil in and of itself. And although heaven is our home, guess what? You're not there yet. <laughs> Newsflash, you're here. And we're here to live in this culture as light. Maybe better put, we are here to live in this earth that will one day be a new earth where we're going to live forever and praise God. We are the lights that are to light up the dark world. Jesus came as a human so as to redeem all of us so that we can be redeemed. And in the meantime, I believe we can live in our cultural context in such a way that we can see certain parts of our culture transformed for the glory of God. God fashioned us as humans to interact with the created world so that we might see his glory in all that we do. And scripture tells us that in all of our doing, we can worship God and we can bring him praise. Let everything that you do be unto God as praise. He created the world. He created us. He created our minds. He created our bodies. And he concluded that all of that was very good. Yes, we have sinned. Yes, we all have fallen short of the glory of God, but now in Christ, we're not called to be cancelers of culture or cursers of culture, but redeemers and enjoyers of culture. When we enjoy what God has given us properly, we contribute to joy spiritually for both ourselves and others that are searching for the joy that you have found in Christ. Here's what I would encourage you. If we have no ability to enjoy the things in life that God intended for our pleasure, 
then we will become easy prey to the enemy who will tempt us to find joy in destructive counterfeits. I'm convinced that a lot of times the reason that we fall into things that are sinful and not pleasing to God is because we didn't know how to properly enjoy the things that he gave us to enjoy in the first place. It's interesting that Jesus and joy go hand in hand, but not just in the way that he lived his life. I believe Jesus was a man of joy just as much as he was a man of sorrows. I believe this. He had to be. And, and not just an internal abiding joy while he was off sullen in the corner somewhere. And they're like, well, he must be joyful on the inside because on the outside he doesn't look at it all. He was a culture changer. He was not just a man of sorrows. He was a man of joy. And it took it all the way to the cross where in Hebrews it says, for the joy set before him, what? He scorned the cross. Consider him who endured such oppositions from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What I want you to know is that by joy, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus endured the most difficult, most shameful, least righteous, most unfitting anguish any human has ever faced or ever will, and he did so for the joy that was set before him. How then, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, can joy in God not explode with significance for us in everyday life? One of the most astounding claims that Jesus makes on the night before he died is that he would not leave us with the scarcity of our own joy that he wanted his joy to be ours. Like, let my joy be theirs. Let my joy make their joy complete. Not just that we would have joy, but that we would have his joy. The very joy of the Son of God himself would be poured out into our souls. And he says it twice, just so we wouldn't miss it. I don't have time to go into all of it, but he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Think about that. His joy must have been attractive, like I said, to those who knew him best. His own disciples must have thought that he had joy for him to make a statement like that, or else why would they want it? I mean, if I thought about, man, you have my joy like Pastor Brent has, now that'd be a little testy. Now you look like you're mad most of the time, Pastor Brent. I don't want that joy. Now this is a Jesus. If he is a man of joys, if he has indeed been anointed with the oil of gladness, then how could we not want to share in this joy? Let me say this, because I want you to see how Christ transformed culture and how we can continue to do so, no matter how bad it gets. So Jesus, crucified and risen, is the culmination of God's culture rescuing plan. Jesus faces the worst that human powers can do, and he rises not just with some merely spiritual triumph over powers, but with a cultural triumph. An answer to all who would hear the good news of the gospel and become of a part of his kingdom forever on earth. In the kingdom of God, a new kind of life and a new kind of culture could become possible. Not by abandoning the old, but by transforming it. Not by running away from it, but by being sent into it. Not by cursing it and calling people names, but by calling on the name of Jesus in the middle of it. Our world's can be changed. Culture can be transformed. And how do we know? We look back at Jesus and we consider this cultural transformation. In his context, the cross was known as an object of the most horrific type of death and torture that you can imagine. 
And because Christ, for the joy set before him, went into the world to redeem it, now what used to be in a cultural context marking death and torture has now become the symbol of Christianity in the realm of happiness and redemption and joy now and forever. That's redeeming culture. And that's what God's called us as church to do as well. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have called us to such a time as this. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, before we sing this last song, before we sing that God would be praised, let's affirm that the way that we want him to be praised is in how we live our lives. How we live our lives out loud in front of other people. How we are sent into the world when we walk out these four walls today and bring joy to people who are searching for joy who bring true happiness to those who believe that the pursuit of happiness is what they're here for. And yet we all understand by our own experience that we're not going to find that happiness or joy that's lasting until we find salvation in Christ. So I'm asking right now that you, church, would commit to being those who are culture changers, culture transformers, who walk into the middle of the darkness and shine the light brightly. Yes, with wisdom. Yes, with discernment. And also not alone, but together as the body. And God, as we do that, I'm praying that you will begin to transform the culture around us, transform the lives of people around us, transform the community of Evans around us, transform the region that we live in, God, for your glory as we continue to create things, as we continue to care for things that you've given us to enjoy, primarily people made in your image, as we care for them and as we love them and as we are kind to them, as you have been kind to us, Lord, we will see their lives transformed and the culture of their world transformed and the culture that we're living in transformed. God, you are more than able to do this and we trust you. Thank you for listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at InFocus Church.